We are again studying this passage in Luke chapter 11 where the Lord gives us the Lord's Prayer. And here in this passage that I'll read for us in a moment, the disciples, they having heard Jesus praying privately and having heard John the Baptist praying privately and also teaching his disciples how to pray, they knew that they were missing something. They knew that they were missing something very, very important. That there was a really big difference in the way that Jesus prayed in particular. Different from all those other prayers that they had been hearing in their synagogues and in their temple. And they hungered to know more about how to pray. And so then we read these words given here in Luke chapter 11. Let me read these for us. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John has also taught his disciples. So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who has sinned against us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, while these words given here in this prayer might seem to be somewhat simple and fundamental, uh, even much like other instructions that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples in parables and analogies. These words are not simple. They are filled to overflowing with deep meaning. Words of instruction that can be said and heard by many. So many people repeat this Lord's Prayer, but they are only mouthing the words too often. They are only mouthing those words. But these words have mysteries that only the Holy Spirit can make clear to our hearts. And that is why it's so important that we have Christ as our Savior and have the Holy Spirit living within us. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I've given these words to us often, but let me say them again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. And then listen to these words. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. You and I can only know what these words mean as the Holy Spirit interprets them for us. And again, while so many people are able to recite these familiar words from memory. People who don't even know Christ can say the Lord's Prayer from memory. As these words of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tell us, they do not understand what they're reading, what they're saying, what they're hearing. It's only when you have the Holy Spirit within you that you can hear the genuine spirit and truth of these words. So then, as you and I then examine these words of this special prayer, let's ask God's Holy Spirit to interweave their meanings into our hearts and our souls and then to help us to own them for our own. Do you own the words 
of this Lord's Prayer for your own. Now first, a question that we considered last week and we answered in last week's message, but I want to say it again. And that is, does God intend us just to pray this prayer in exactly the same way that it's given? And the answer is, yes, sometimes. Probably often, but not always. All through the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God gives us many different manners of prayer and wordings of prayer. But these words, these words in particular, do give us the basic fundamentals for most all prayer. And for that reason, we should always use this wording as an underlying standard and a guide for whatever prayer we're praying. Jesus began here by telling his disciples, he said, now when you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now why should this prayer or any prayer, our own prayers, why should they begin in this manner or at least with these words in mind? It's because these words establish the very foundation upon which effectual prayer can be made. One of the most elemental considerations of prayer is that it should always be made to a person who is in a position of authority and is able to accommodate our prayer. So to pray to a person for a particular request assumes then that whoever you're making that request of is able to help you in your time of need. Because it makes no sense. It makes no sense for us to pray otherwise. But folks, unfortunately, many people do. Many people offer up prayers to whomever they hope can answer them, even to the wind. Now, to us Southern Bible Belt Christians, those words sound odd. Say, I would never do that. But listen, these are not odd words. I've witnessed many, many people in their times of crisis. They're saying words that sound hopeful and prayerful, saying their words out loud, but to no one in particular. And especially not saying them to the God that we know and that we trust, the God of this Bible. They seem to be just hoping that some higher power out there might be listening and might agree to help them. Have you experienced that? I know I I have on many occasions where I know that person does not know Christ. They're just throwing up these prayers, hoping that someone will listen and help them. And there are also many people across our world who believe in other gods, false gods, and they pray to them. Some of them, many of the ones that came to my mind, are in the Asian countries. And they believe that their dead ancestors can intercede to help them. And so they light all these little candles and they do all of these things, offering up prayers to their ancestors, hoping that their dead ancestors will intercede and help them somehow. And I don't know how, but they have some hope. And then also our Catholic friends. Our Catholic friends believe that they can pray to dead saints and those dead saints can help them. Folks, they should not do that. And then also, some people pray to angels. Some people pray to angels hoping for their help. A couple of the popular 
songs that I have heard in recent years. Call on angels to help. There's a song by that name, Calling on Angels. Folks, listen. Those of us who believe in the one true God must pray to God and to Him only. He alone has the power and the authority to receive and to answer our prayers. And to pray to anyone else or anything else is an offense to Him. It's an offense to Him. That's why we find here in these words, the Lord Jesus instructing us, His disciples and us, to begin each prayer acknowledging this, acknowledging that it is God the Father who art in heaven and doing that with the full knowledge, the full understanding, the passionate belief that it's there with Him, the one true God, our omnipotent God, one who resides in the heavens, who alone is worthy of the honor of our trust and of our prayers, and that He has the power to answer our prayers. Else it's for no avail. To begin each prayer in this way, it also serves another purpose. It serves to continually remind us that we ought often to ponder the great wonder and majesty of God. Because God truly is almighty. He's omnipotent. And if He weren't, we would not trust. We'd not be able to trust. He's the one that created everything that exists with just the word of His mouth. And we need to ponder that as we pray. And another thing that we need to acknowledge each time that we pray is that God really does have a residence. Yes, He's everywhere at one time, but He has a residence within the heaven of heavens. And that's why we say, Our Father who art in heaven. Why is that important? Folks, outside of a group of believers like us, there are many people who believe that, believes that God resides right here in creation. There are those who believe in these false gods. They believe that very firmly. Our Hindu, the Hindu people, Hindu worshipers, they believe that God is in so many different parts of His creation, trees and all of the inanimate objects. But our God, God the Father, listen, so important, God the Father is ever and always separate from His creation. This creation is corruptible. He is ever and always, though He can live within us, His Spirit can live within us, He is always separate from all of His creation. Such an important thought for you to ponder. God is always holy. And He tells us here that His name is to be hallowed. What does that mean? It means that He's righteous. And He is holy and He is deserving of being kept separate from us. By the way, the word holy means to be set apart. Holy has a sense of righteousness to it, but the word holy itself means to be set apart. So when he says to you and to me, be holy as I am holy, he's saying be set apart from the ways and the habits and the, the sin of this world. Be set apart from that for my purposes. It's very important for us to keep that in mind. And also, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, their existence, their plans, and their will 
They were and they are and will always be absolutely irrespective of anything going on outside of them. Now that sounds like strange talk. But what it means is that they have a plan. They have a plan that they set into motion before the foundations of the earth. And we are following that plan. Everything that God does has to do with His plan and His will. Let me say again, we mankind foolishly behave as if God's existence is in some way connected to or dependent even upon us, upon His creation. That as we change, that so will He or so should He at least. But that's simply not so, folks. That's not so. God is God and His existence, His plans and His will, they're completely irrespective of us. All that God is and all that God does is according to His divine plan that He set into motion before the foundations of the world and they will not vary or change because of the existence of or because of the deeds of man. I'm reminded of the arguments being given today by our liberal politicians that say that in order to address the current problems and circumstances of our culture, which changes on almost a daily basis, our rules, our laws, these politicians believe that our rules and our laws need to change, that they should be fluid and able to change with the culture. And to some, that sounds like a great idea. You can hear it being said in our media. But is that a good idea? Unfortunately, for many of those same people, and listen, some of those same people are well entrenched within the organized church. And they believe that God and His church should do the same. That's why you're seeing these churches split off from their denominations. They believe that the church needs to do the same as these liberal politicians are doing and believing. That God should bend and change according to the needs of the culture. But listen, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He does not change with these times that are changing. He doesn't bend or yield to the latest craze within our sinful world. His holiness and His righteousness are the same as they were in the beginning. He is unchangeable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust Him to always remain that way. We don't have to wake up in the morning and wondering if God has changed the rules on us. He'll never change. Let me also address something that uh, perhaps you've read some of it, but it's been a misconception for the last 50 years at least. And that is that this thing that God has done with mankind is some sort of grand experiment that God is conducting. An experiment that requires that He do ebb and flow, ever-changing in order to accommodate mankind's conduct and behavior. But folks, listen, that is simply not so. That is not the way God is. Our existence is not an experiment of His. God had a plan. As I said a moment ago, God had a plan when He first put this earth into being and He first created Adam and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. And He knew at that moment 
that Adam was going to sin and fall from grace. He knew that Adam wouldn't be able to save himself from the sin that he was about to commit. And that he would go into the pit of hell if there was not some measure of grace given to Adam. And the Lord Jesus, who was the very one that breathed that breath into the nostrils of Adam. He knew that he would personally need to come to this earth and die on the cross to redeem all of fallen mankind. Now, why would he do such a thing? That's strange to our way of thinking. Why would he do such a thing as he breathed that breath into Adam's nostrils and he knew that Adam was going to fall? Why did he go ahead and do that? Folks, I don't know. I know you'd like for me to give you an answer to that. We don't know why. It has something to do with grace. It has to do with His holiness. And we'll probably only know the answer to that mystery when we do get into heaven. But He did. And He put His grace in place. And thankfully, He didn't stop there. Mercifully, He chose to take an even further step. A step that goes beyond our comprehension, and that is he chose, God chose to humble himself and to become an intimate and loving father to us. He wanted to be the father to this one who he knew was going to fall and fail miserably. He told us about that in Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, you, me. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. That's an amazing statement that I confess I do not understand. But we are, we are fellow heirs with His Son, Christ. If we have received Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, then you and I are sons, true sons. And ladies, please understand that when God uses this expression, sons of God, He includes, without any distinction, men and women, just as He also includes us men in the group that He calls the Bride of Christ. But we are true sons of God. And he tells us that again in John chapter 1. He tells us there in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name. Let me pause there for a moment. You can believe in Christ and not be a Christian. You can believe in Christ and not be a Christian. Why do I say that? He tells us that very plainly in the book of James. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. No, you have to do this second part. But to all who did receive him. So you and I need to not only believe in him, we have to receive him. He says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a wonderful, wonderful promise that is. We who are in Christ, we are true sons of God. And as sons, we can come freely and boldly before his throne of mercy and grace. And we can call out to him just like Jesus was doing. We can call out to him, Abba, Father. That's what Jesus was teaching them. That you can now call me Father because you're my son. So when 
Jesus then gave these instructions. When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's declaring to us that we have the privilege of doing just as he was doing, and that is to call God the Father, Father. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives this same prayer. I believe it was another occasion. And he added some words to it. And I want to read that for us. And I want to follow that for the rest of this message. He says there in Matthew chapter 6, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in a secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you need before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, then pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now again, as we said a moment ago, as we pray, we must confidently remind ourselves that we are truly God's beloved children. And He really does want to hear and to answer our prayers. Consider that for a moment. Your own children. When one of the little ones would come to you and say to you, Dad, may I talk with you for a moment? We welcome them. That's what God the Father does. But He's telling us here that that's best done in a private place. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't have corporate prayer the way we have it here in the church? Or does that mean that we shouldn't pray with a group? Uh, No, it doesn't. And to the contrary, as I said last week, we should freely and openly pray with other people, especially our family members, our loved ones. But here in these words, Jesus is instructing His disciples and us that some of our ordinary daily prayer time is best done during a private time between us and God. And I would ask you, do you have a time each day that you stop and get quiet before the Lord, away from other people, away from your spouse, or away from the children, away from grandchildren? You go to a quiet place. Do you have one of those times every day, every day, He's saying we should, where we can have private time alone with God. And here he gives us one of the reasons why. He says, uh, talking about the Pharisees, he was saying, they have ulterior motives. They want other people to hear them pray and perhaps be impressed with their prayers. But he's saying, for these prayers, I don't want that to take place. I want it to be with you and me alone away from the pressures, away from the distractions of the day, with the television turned off, with your cell phone turned off, so that those incoming texts or emails 
can be dealt with later. I want some one-on-one time with you. That's what God is saying to us. And it's there in that quietness. But that one-on-one relationship, that friendship, that real friendship. Jesus says, I, I now call you friends. He said to his disciples, I now call you friends. We can have that relationship building time. We can become familiar with who he is more than we've ever done before. And we can begin to trust in him. In the intimacy of just two people talking, we can say things that we'd not otherwise say. Loving things. Or even some very difficult things, like talking to God about our sin. When was the last time you talked to God about a sin that you have been committing? He wants to talk to you about sin. Sin separates us from Him. So He wants us to sit down with Him and talk to Him about sin. So many of the Psalms give a picture of that kind of intimacy. You recall that David, when he had become convicted of his sin with Bathsheba, God reminded David's heart that all sin, listen, all sin is a personal offense against him, against God. And David said that in Psalm 51. He said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Yes, David had injured and hurt and, and violated all of those other people, Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, Joab. But here the Lord is saying, but your sin, I'm the one that makes the law and the law that you violated, you violated me. And so David cried out, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Again, simply put, our sin is always first against God and God alone. It's His holiness that's being violated when we commit sin. And because of that, our repentance must be very personal and very intimate between us and God. And private moments alone with Him give us that uninterrupted time that we can pour out our heart to Him in repentance. And yes, if we've hurt other people, if we've offended other people, yes, we might need to make amends with them, but that can be done later. The first part is our repentance before God, and that must always come first. And likewise, most all of the other matters of our daily life, they need to be dealt with in those private moments spent alone with God, our thanksgiving to Him, and especially our petitions and our requests. Now, why would that be so? Folks, if you're like me, too many times my petitions, my requests, are for things that are not in accordance with His will. Sometimes we let our emotions, even our lusts, dictate our desires. And because of that, we find ourselves asking God, to give us things or relationships that we should not have. And then with us listening in private for His still, small voice, we can better be able to hear His quiet answer of no. No. And no is a really, really good answer when it's the right answer. When the answer should be no, no should be given and we should hear it. And folks, that is the nature All of this is the nature of a loving relationship that takes place when when a son gets along with his father 
and earnestly engages in a quiet conversation with him. That's love. That's real love. And that's the real nature of real prayer. As Jesus said here in these words, you're to get alone with God and you're to say to him, Father, may we talk for a while. May we talk for a while. Let me close with these words of Matthew chapter 6. There Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room, a quiet place, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, we want to do this. We want our prayers to be more than just some artificial wording. We want them to be real intimate conversation with you. Amen.